Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And you know what? I'm so sorry, guys. In our last episode, we left you halfway through 2013. But don't worry, we're back and we're here to pick you up and carry you the rest of the way. Because otherwise, how would you ever know what would have happened in the past six months of your life? Right. I mean, clearly you were sitting on the edge of your seat. How is 2013 going to turn out? Will June follow May? Yes, it did. So we're picking up in June 2013. Uh, this is uh, the first story we have is one that amused me because I was very curious to see how it would play out. And I'm still perplexed. Um, and we're talking about the MySpace relaunch. Uh, so MySpace, obviously a huge social media platform back in the day. Yeah, I think as of what would that have been like 2004? 2006, 2007. Okay. Yeah, like, you know, there was a time where everyone was on MySpace. Facebook had just started. And I was it on was, MySpace, sure. Yeah, and and Facebook was just for college students when it first started. I couldn't, uh, by that time, I was out of college. So I, I was not, uh, I was not admitted into Facebook. I didn't fit that, that criteria. That demographic, right. Yeah, so I was, uh, but I was on MySpace. And I remember seeing Facebook opening up to the public and thinking, this upstart social platform is never, why are they even trying? MySpace already dominates the space. But then over time, you know, I got a little tired of everyone turning their profile pages into sparkly unicorns that play music at you no matter what you try to do. Oh, that was the best part of MySpace. Yeah, when it became GeoCities Part 2. Yes. So uh, anyway, long story short, they decided to... Uh, new owners came in and bought up the company. They rebranded, they relaunched, they had a $20 million ad campaign. Yeah, and it's really more about, I mean, it was always a big place for music discovery, but now that's almost all it's about. And it's mm-hmm. just about music discovery. But uh, I don't know that that many people care about it. I think it was a little, it was too little too late. You had already lost a, a great deal of your audience, and the ones who remain are, are diehards, but you're not really – I don't think that MySpace is attracting new audience uh, the way they need to. I think that I think that young bands are probably going to something like Tumblr um, or SoundCloud or right. making their own um, their own blog to, right, right. to where, launch that sort of thing. Where you can get all that stuff. and mm-hmm. or, or a little bit on Facebook still. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, that was a tough one. Also in June, that's when we first learned about Google's Project Loon, which uh, we talked about. Right. Those are those um, kind of Internet weather balloons. Yeah. Or, uh, balloons that provide Wi-Fi to uh, remote locations mm-hmm. and they float in the stratosphere to do it. Yeah. Uh, we did a whole episode on that on uh, November 20th called The Loons at Google, if you would like to go check that out. Yeah. Uh, my favorite part of that story is the Australian couple who were one of the early, early alpha testers. Yeah, who were approached by the Google men in black who, who just said, showed like, up at their house. Yeah, can we put this on your house? We can't tell you what it is or what it does or how long it'll be there. And they said, OK. <laughs> Apparently, it's very laid back on the Outback. So uh, then we've got another big story. This is really we joked last Last in the last episode about the biggest story of the year being GIF or Jeff. This, I think, is truly the biggest story of the year. It would be hard to say it's not. Oh, absolutely. The ramifications of this one are are huge. We are, of course, talking about the story that was first broken by The Guardian and The Washington Post that coordinated together to reveal that the NSA was having a surveillance program that stretched across the Internet and was incredibly deep to the point where uh, it was uh, it was 
farming out information from major providers like Google. It was, you know, essentially tapping into that stream and seeing all the stuff that was going through. Um, in an attempt, at least from the NSA's point of view, to stop uh, foreign threats against the United States. The idea being that this was really only supposed to apply to communications between uh, agents of foreign nations, whether that is a citizen who's working on a uh, United States citizen working on behalf of a foreign nation or some person of, uh, you know, some, someone, a foreigner who is working on behalf of a nation. Mm-hmm. Um, How, but, however, because of the way the, the Internet works, and the way that data centers work, we it, it's really a quite widespread surveillance program. And not only that, but they have a very low threshold of certainty that they felt they needed to hit in order for them yeah. to identify someone as a foreign agent. In other words, you know, it, like if they felt 51 percent sure that someone was a foreign agent, they would go ahead and start. You that's know, that's the threshold at which, yeah, they they instructed their their operators to a go in a little more than a mm-hmm. coin flip. And on, yeah. on top of that, there were some stories about NSA employees abusing the system, people who were using it to spy on like ex girlfriends or ex boyfriends, or people who were using it for other means. Where you know clearly this is not a foreign agent. This is people being people, and right. even you know, this is a good example of how even if your system was designed. To do a specific thing really well, it's really only as good as the people who are using it. So even if we were to take the NSA at their word that everything was on the up and up and everything is legal, and that's questionable, too, according to your point of view. I mean, the whole thing was approved by a secret court whose findings are under uh, under court order so that you can't see them. Yeah. You know, we we aren't allowed to actually look in on the process, but we're told that the process works. It's a complicated and frankly terrifying story. Yeah. And it's one that's played out over the entire year since then. Yeah. Um, and and especially, I mean, you know, it's the fact that we learned about all of this from a former NSA contractor, Edward Snowden, yep. kind of proves the point of, of the system is only as good as its operators. Yes, because Snowden was not like an NSA spy. Snowden was uh, someone who worked on the system side of it, saw stuff that he felt was, the public needed to know about. Yeah, he's, he, he was like, this is not right, and I don't know how to act on this other than to hand this information over to the press. Yeah. And so that's what Snowden did. And, uh, of course, depending upon how you view Snowden, you may think that he's a traitor or you may think he's a hero. He's currently living in temporary asylum in Russia because he's essentially in exile. If he were to come back to the United States, he would immediately be arrested. Yep. So, uh, yeah, complicated story that's still playing out. And it's it's got a lot of ramifications outside of just this story. It's it's raised awareness about everything from uh, online privacy to what is our expectation for uh, for our government looking in on not just us, but other countries, other countries, of course, looking at the United States saying, uh, even if all of your citizens are cool with this. We're totally not cool with this. Uh, yeah. And especially since, you know, they're 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 monitoring so much information from so many people that that use services that either port through America or are owned by American companies that that normal citizens in many other countries are being affected by this as well. So, yeah, big, big story. Yeah, um, uh, we we did we did a two parter about PRISM, which is that that main program that the NSA is running. Uh, Those episodes ran on July 29th and 31st. Excellent. So go check those out if you want to hear more about this story. Uh, next, we have a little more lighthearted story. Uh, that was when the Ouya console launched on Amazon for $99. It sold out basically immediately. Yep. Uh, so this was the console that uh, had a Kickstarter campaign in 2012. And 
was overwhelmingly successful. This was one of those stories like the Pebble smartwatch that mm-hmm. just, you know, it, did, it just skyrocketed. Yeah, yeah, it really hit a nerve. Uh, however, from the at least the initial reviews of the system, a lot of people felt that um, it had a lot of potential but didn't live up to it yet. It was a little bit half-baked yeah, right now. So, yeah. mm-hmm. so it may it may turn out that in the long run, it ten- turns into a console that people uh, are considered one of the beloved consoles. But right now, I, I mean, a lot of those early reviews were pretty harsh. I remember even seeing an unboxing video where a person unboxed an Ouya, showed it off to the camera, and then immediately put it in a garbage can. Aww. Yeah, which I thought was, you know, that come on, stay classy. But uh, <laughs> but still, you get the wait, point. Wait, wait, we're on the internet. I do you know how the internet works? You, what's the what's the internet? I I'm still on the ARPANET and I no one talks to me. I th- I think I've isolated your problem. <laughs> Let's move on to July, shall we? Yes. Um that's when the director of Microsoft's Xbox program Don Matrick left the company to become the new CEO of Zynga. Yeah, which was one of those things that caused a lot of analysts to say, "Wait, what?" Because, you know, because it's... because Xbox, you know, won like arguably at that point in the year the largest yeah, gaming but, company. Yeah, I mean, Xbox had been selling like crazy. It, it, some people would argue that the Xbox division was the one division in Microsoft that really was doing a, a great job. Mm-hmm. And then Matrick leaves that to go help Zynga, which had was a company that was known to be in a kind of uh, weird spiral. Continual weird state of flux. Uh, and Zynga, of course, being that mobile gaming app company um, that, that has done things like Farmville and Words with Friends. Yeah, stuff that uh, is on mobile platforms and also on, on social media platforms. Sure. And uh, I mean, Zynga's old CEO actually essentially fired himself and then hired Metric. <laughs> so that was an interesting story. And then, uh, you know, Xbox got a new director. Uh, yeah, that would be Julie Larson Green. She is officially the um, executive vice president of devices and studios, which means that she's in charge of all Xbox hardware devices, games, music and entertainment. Um, this, this was seen as a pretty good choice. By most people, because she, I mean, she she got her start at Microsoft overseeing the development of Visual C++. She helped create the ribbon for Office 2000. She's the previous co-leader of Windows. She led the planning on Windows 7. Um, so she she had some chops. Some serious yeah. chops. Let me guess what the problem was. She was a she. She was a she and some really sexist gamers. And she, I mean, she happens to be like more or less like symmetrical in her face. And so therefore a lot of really sexist gamers were like, that pretty lady can't possibly be a gamer or know enough about games to <sighs> do stuff and things. And, and, and to be fair, she's, she's self-professed, like not huge into gaming, but I, I don't think yeah, that that's necessarily. Yeah, when you're talking about the business side of things, yeah. it's it's not like the president of the Xbox division is the person who decides which games get made and which ones don't. This is someone who's got a vision for the overall console's direction. And also, I would like to posit that if, in fact, we chose Xbox's president by, like, the person who got the best gamer score. Uh, yeah, it would be terrible. They, they, these would be, these, these companies would be in shambles. Yes. So, Come on, guys. All right. Uh, At any rate. <laughs> so also in July, Google unveiled Chromecast, which is a cute little dongle that can connect to a television's HDMI port. And uh, over Wi-Fi, it can uh, pick up signals from your laptop or mobile device and stream from the content on your computer or, or mobile device to the television. So in other words, if you don't have 
something like a game console or some other set-top box that brings in web content. Or you've got one, but it's really limited. Like it only brings in web content from very specific sources. This would give you more uh, flexibility. I actually own one of these. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I've got a lot of different options when it comes to getting web content on my TV because I'm I don't know if you know this. I like technology. Uh huh. So but I got one of these and it turns out that I, I love this because if you want to look for something specific uh, on, let's say, YouTube, let's say that you want to you want to look at a YouTube video on your large screen. Um, this would be a way of being able to do a search very quickly, whereas a lot of the, the different consoles and set-top boxes out there have very clunky search features. Absolutely. Um, if you're not using something that has voice command where you can say, look for that funny video where the cat falls asleep, then you're going to have some trouble. But if you're able to go to your laptop and just do a quick search by typing out a few keywords and then casting it, you know, streaming it from your computer to the TV, it makes it much simpler. And it's also a super, I mean, relatively speaking, a super cheap device. Yeah, it retails for like 35 bucks, I think. Yep, 35 bucks. I was on a waiting list because by the time I ordered it, it had already been announced and then initially sold out. But even on the waiting list, I think I had to wait maybe two weeks and then I got mine. And that was when it bad, first yeah. came out. Mm-hmm. So uh, speaking of waiting lists, though, hey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, this is a story that fills me with joy. Uh, this this one was not uh, p- perhaps one of the largest uh, stories of the year, but but it is very, very close to Jonathan's heart. Um, yeah, this- if you've listened to the I can't remember what episode it was where I totally lost it on this particular story. I and do whether, remember doing that, though. And whether we edited most of that out or not. But um, but in in July, Best Buy began stocking Pebble smartwatches. Um. Uh, slightly before all of the Kickstarter backers of, of the Pedal project had received their own. Right. To, I, I was not a Kickstarter project backer, so I was not expecting pre, to get it. Pre-orders. Yeah, sure. I was, a, I was a pre-order, okay. but yeah, I, I like to think that when you pre-order, <laughs> I'm gonna have the same brand. You, I'm not gonna do it. I'm not gonna do it. You, you, you pre-ordered a, a special color and they had not manufactured that color yet. That's the, true. the ones available at Best Buy were only the black that ones. That is true. And I got the, I got the you red one. You got the one. cherry red one. And not only it's that, it's very stylish. Not only that, on the back of it, it says Kickstarter edition. And I was not a Kickstarter backer and yet I got a Kickstarter edition watch. So I cannot really complain. Also, I love that watch. I'm not wearing it right now. I, I accidentally left it at home. But, I had, but it, he usually but is. I usually do wear it. Um, I I love it. It is one of my favorite gadgets that I've picked up in the last couple of years. And it's you know people say, well, the Pebble smartwatch is kind of limited in what it can do, which is true. But what it does do, it does really well, and I I like the things that it does do. So, um, I've really had. If you ever watch any of my forward thinking videos. Anyone I shot after the, I got that watch, you'll see that watch on my wrist. So, but yes, there was a moment where I was, <laughs> I was cursing Pebble. Uh, next we have a story that developed and we also covered this in an episode of Tech Stuff. This was a special episode of Tech Stuff that, uh, Lauren, you, you, you weren't there. Yeah, I was out at one, uh, my two best friends got married two weekends in a row, uh, in October, so I missed a little bit of things due to, uh, insanity and travel plans, and Ben Bolin was kind enough to step in and do this episode with Jonathan about Elon Musk's Hyperloop. Yep. And Elon Musk, of course, founder of Tesla Motors, founder of SpaceX. Everyone has acknowledged that this dude is, is really smart and really good at the business. 
And so he had been teasing for a while that he had this this cool idea for a new kind of transportation system. And eventually he leaked that it was going to be called the Hyperloop or that his concept was called Hyperloop. Right. Not that it was going to be called because uh, we're not really positive that this is going to come to fruition ever. Yeah. No one has any plans of actually building this. In fact, even Musk was saying, like, it would be great if someone took this on, suggesting that he himself was not going to be that person. And to be fair, Musk has a lot on his plate. So yeah, anyway, he's a little bit busy with, you know, Tesla Motors and yeah, SpaceX, SpaceX and yeah, little things like things that. like that, getting people into space and getting electric super fast cars on the road does take a lot of time. Uh, but what would not take a lot of time if Hyperloop were built would be a trip between San Francisco and Los Angeles, which would be only 35 minutes in duration. Right. Uh, yeah. These this is a, a electromagnetic train kind of thing. And, yeah. And yeah. Each each. Car is its own little capsule. It would float on a cushion of air. Those electromagnetic motors would provide the push that would allow it to go around this loop track between San Francisco and L.A. And um, and supposedly you would travel at a at a top speed that would be faster than what most commercial jets travel at. Uh, it you know it remains to be seen whether this is even feasible because mm-hmm. no one has an actual example of this to show that it truly would work. Efficiently, if you listen to the Hyperloop episode we did, uh, you will um, uh, yeah, you'll hear more about that it. one. That one published on November thirteenth. If you're looking for it, yep. So just go back and check that one out. Let's move on to August. Yes, big story. We only have one story for August, but it's a big one. Yeah, uh, that was when Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer announced that he was going to step down. Yeah, which you know some people had been calling for for Ballmer to step down for a couple of years. Developers, uh, developers, developers. <laughs> I think the developers liked him, but I'm not sure that anyone else <laughs> did. Um, no, I'm not. That's being unfair. But there were there have been people who have said that Microsoft suffers from a lack of true leadership. Uh, I was never one of those people. I thought that Balmer certainly was uh, a powerful leader, but I didn't I wasn't always sure that his vision of Microsoft was something that aligned with what a lot of us, the, the rank and file would consider, you know, uh, really to be memorable or, or relevant. Now, he was trying to 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 straddle that line between enterprise and and uh, consumers, and that's tough to do. That is very tough to do. I I also think that he just has some um a, a little bit of like charisma within the press issues going yeah. on, where it, it, he he kind of frequently doesn't come off, I think, as well as he wants to or he, could. He, he certainly comes off as enthusiastic. Yes, but perhaps not as a. Uh, uh, suave, savvy, or yeah. suave, or he, like Steve Jobs could come out and in just a super cool kind of way for for geeks, super cool for geeks. Okay, we're we're talking about a niche audience here, but in a super cool kind of way, really drum up your excitement for something. Uh, and Balmer could come out, and you'd be afraid he'd throw a chair at you. But uh, but you know, to be fair to Balmer, I mean, he really obviously loves, loves Microsoft. Intensely Genuinely loves the loves company, it. yeah. Yeah, so he, um, in his responses in the wake of the announcement, it seemed to me that it didn't sound like it was entirely his decision to step down. Uh, it seemed to me like he was someone who, who, you know, was really passionate about this company and doesn't necessarily have a vision for what comes next for him. Um, and the question of who will be Microsoft's next CEO remains unanswered as of the recording of this podcast. We are recording on December 12th. So it is possible that before the end of the year, that, that 
decision has been made. But right now, they're looking at a couple different candidates, um, some of whom are people who are known to be great leaders but have no experience in the computer or software industries. Yeah, um, we're going to talk a little bit about that, I think, in our 2014 predictions episode. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that was a that was a big story for August. And uh, we have gotten through uh, Q3. So we want to hit Q4. But before we do that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. You know, try to remember the kind of September when grass was green and grain was yellow. We're talking September 2013. I'm quoting from the Fantastics. If you recognize that, you are awesome. Uh, so September, that's traditionally when a company that rhymes with schmapple comes out and, uh, and, and whips the crowd into a, uh, rabid fervor of joy and consumption, right? Uh, yeah, and they Maybe did tuberculosis consumption. They certainly, I, I, I hope not. I've never gotten <laughs> that from my iPhone. There's no app for that. Um, I <laughs> know, uh, no, that's that's when they unveiled the iPhone 5C and 5S. And it's funny because uh, one of your predictions was all about this, and you were, or, and one of my predictions was kind of about this. I think either way, one of us predicted this, and we were right on the money. I think I think that was you. Oh, I want I want to say that you said that there was going to be a new iPhone, and that but you were it, the one who called it iPhone 5s. Oh, okay, well yeah, there you so go. It was a tag team victory. Excellent. Yeah. Well, now I now it all comes back to me. Well, high fives. Yes. Um. So the 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 5s was the slightly more hardware update update. Yeah, faster processor, better screen, uh, biometric fingerprint scanner. Some all, all the little cool bells and whistles were added to that one. Mm-hmm. The 5c was basically just a cheaper version of the of the five of the original five. But you um, could get it in a different color than white or black. In in multiple kind of awful colors. Stupid colors. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I I'm sure there are people out there who who accessorize everything and you've got, you know, your gorgeous phone that's a gorgeous color. I'm a simple I just want a black phone. Oh, it's, it's, I, for, for me personally, that's what, um, that's what cases are for, but I can certainly understand the, the cheaper part being. Yeah. A big, a big draw. That, yeah. Sure. Uh, September was also the month when Blockbuster Incorporated declared bankruptcy, which followed Blockbuster UK. They had declared bankruptcy back in January of 2013, but in the United States, the main company didn't declare until September. Yeah, by November they would have closed all of their U.S. brick and mortar stores. Oh, yeah, they planned or, on or, it. Oh, right, right. That's the, they announced that they would do that by January of 2014. Yeah, so no longer will you walk into a neighborhood blockbuster and look at the multiple copies of Parent Trap Two and say, "Yeah, I just don't know what to watch." Um, now you can do that from the convenience of a red box. Yes, or. Streaming. Or streaming. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, in fact, Blockbuster still does have a streaming service, although I've read some pretty critical reviews of that particular service. I have not used it, so I, I am, I am not sure what the quality is because yeah. I've never personally used it. Uh, it's in partnership with Dish, though. Yeah. Which is, uh, you know, big enough that I think, you know, it, it certainly has the potential to live on. Yeah. Dish essentially bought Blockbuster, um, and has decided to shut down all the retail because, it just looks like that's, you know, that's that's in the past. It, it Everything seems to be moving toward online distribution, which is not a big surprise to anyone who's been paying attention over the last few years. Oh, sure. And also, I mean, even for, for offline distribution, I think that just when you're competing with a company like Redbox that has these, you know, I mean, basically zero footprint uh, machines instead right. of large retail spaces that yep. you have to... 
yeah. build out and, yeah. and, and pay, you know, or employees even, for. Even if you're competing against like Netflix's DVD service, yeah. which a lot of us forget about, but still exists. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, a tough story for them. Uh, that brings us into October 2013. That's uh, when, right. Uh, That's more Apple news. Oh, more schmapple. Yep. <laughs> that's when they so they had already updated their iPhones, but that's not good enough for Apple. They they have to update lots of stuff. Uh, they updated their iPad line. They introduced the iPad Air, which is I will admit a gloriously beautiful looking device. A- Apple is pretty good at that. I don't own one. Uh, I don't think I'll be buying one anytime soon, but I can certainly see the appeal of it. Yeah. Um. They also introduced a new MacBook Pro. Yep. A couple different models of that, and uh-huh. uh, they introduced. Uh, they they had already announced the new operating system. But this is when they actually were launching Mavericks, which was that was a big departure, right? Yeah, well A A it's not named after a big cat. Yeah. Um so that was that was weird. There. Um but I don't but, know but, how to deal. but also that it would be a free download for current Mac OS owners. Yeah, so it wasn't something where you'd have to go and purchase this operating system update. You could download it for free, which is a, a new model. It essentially kind of sends a message saying that Apple is getting into more and more of the hardware side of things as their main revenue generation point and not the operating system side. Also, I think it was a huge um of bite of the thumb in the face of Microsoft and all <laughs> yes. of their, all of their Windows 8 problems. Yes, Apple was the Montague to Microsoft's Capulet, and they did bite their thumb at them. Uh, <laughs> Sir, yeah. yes. Yes, yes, Sarah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, yeah, that was a, that was a big story, actually, because yeah, again, you know, Microsoft, we didn't really cover it in this, in this, uh, look back at 2013. But Microsoft didn't have a whole lot of success with Windows 8 in 2013. Uh, yeah, that's kind of why we don't have a have a bullet in here, because nothing happened with it. Yeah, just it was one of those things where people who liked it really liked it, but there weren't that many people. Yeah. A lot of people just didn't try it. Mm-hmm. So it could be that the potential audience is huge, but the actual audience is pretty small. So, you know, offering up your OS for free was, again, thumbing the nose or biting the thumb. <laughs> you know, it's somewhere that hand is somewhere in front of the face and things are not polite. Thumbs are involved. Uh, also in October, that's when um, Jeff Bezos, uh, the, the CEO, of course, of Amazon, yep. officially took over as the owner of the Washington Post newspaper. Which was a big shakeup in the in the newspaper uh, industry. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the paper had been owned by the same co- the, the, the same family, um, the, the Graham family for 80 years. Yeah, that's a long time. So. He paid a cool 250 million for that, which some people had suggested was actually too much, but uh, saying that you know print is on the way out. Sure, uh, but you know I, I think that it's interesting um, for for Amazon to absorb that kind of news service, especially when you compare them to uh, to to say the Apple family of of, of iTunes right. and news distribution like that. Um, but, uh, for, for more of the crazy things that, um, Amazon and Bezos do, we did a two part series on, on them, uh, that aired February 25th and 27th of this year. Yep. So of course that predates this particular story. But, of course. But, and also I should point out that, uh, I believe it's Bezos who owns Washington Post and it's separate from Amazon entirely, oh. which well, I don't know how long that'll last or exactly. I, it's, I wonder if Bezos is just positioning himself to be the next, uh, Hearst. Newspaper baron, yes. If he builds a castle, and then if he buys a sled, just watch out. That's all I'm saying. No spoilers, but Uh, watch out. Other other things to kind of watch out for. 
uh, <laughs> a mysterious barge off the coast of San Francisco. Gosh, I remember hearing this story and I was immediately enthralled. The idea that there was a barge and no one was really sure why it was there. And it had canisters on it that made it four stories tall. And it was off uh, Treasure Island off the coast of San Francisco. And I'm like, is this tr- is this a pirate story that's happening <laughs> I mean, you know, granted, it's not a Spanish war galleon or anything, but still. And it turned out, uh, well, eventually people figured out that it was connected to Google, although Google was being very sly and not saying anything about it. And uh, then the question was, well, what is it? Some people thought that perhaps it was going to be one of those floating data centers that Google had created a patent for years ago, where mm-hmm. the idea would be that you would use the ocean water to help keep the data center cool and and uh, harness even the power of the tides to to get power for your data center. And that maybe this was going to be the first one. And other people are saying, well, no, it's just going to be a giant floating mall for really rich people to buy their Google Glass. And as it turns out, it looks like it's a really giant mall for really rich people to buy their Google Glass and other Google X projects. So, um, assuming that Google can pull together all of the correct uh, regulation kind of kind of paperwork, yeah, yeah um, it, it might be open sometime in 2014. Yeah, it turns out that a lot of different entities began to say, you know, Google. We're going to need a little proof that you can operate this safely and within the laws of the United States. So the Coast Guard got interested, among other entities. So there's going to be some uh, probably some forms to fill out before this ever opens. Um, I, I am curious to find out if only like the super Google stuff is ever sold there. Like you can buy a Google Glass and an autonomous car. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> and, and that's you, it. And you have to drive that car back over, over the ocean. Over the water, yeah. Hopefully yeah. it's like chitty chitty bang bang. <laughs> um, also in October, the um, the Affordable Care Act's website went into um, into went, action. Went yeah. live. Healthcare.gov. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, this was one of those things that uh, it, it had garnered a lot of criticism before it even launched. Uh, well, first of all, uh, there's a political a side of it. Huge political controversy and lots of back and forth and many, many, many months of of lots of tiresome arguments on both sides. That are sides. still going on. Yes. But even apart from all the political arguments, there were some people who they divorced themselves from the whole political side. They just said, you announced this back, you know, in the spring of 2013 and you plan on launching it in the fall of 2013. That's not enough time to design and quality, do, do QA testing for a major operation like this. For a website that millions of people are going to be trying to access potentially at the same time. Right. And uh, so there were a lot of critics who were saying, like, you really this 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 deadline is far too ambitious. Don't, yeah. Don't you want to actually dev that or? Yeah. yeah. But uh, but they went ahead and tried to launch it. And sure enough, there were technical problems early, early on. The, the site suffered some. Uh, for a couple of months, really. I mean, I, I kind of just heard within recent weeks that they put out a redesign early in December, I want to yeah. say. And yeah. and I've heard that people have been having more success with that. Right. But... There's still some technical problems that pop up. But mm-hmm. it was it was one of those things that it certainly didn't help the debate. No, you know, people pointed to the to that as being another uh, another talking point anytime they got into an argument about the Affordable Care Act. Uh, it does seem like it is working better now than it was before, although, you know, your mileage may vary on any given day. So mm-hmm. uh, but still, that's one of the stories that we had to cover. Uh, so that brings us into November. Now we're getting into the recent past for uh, for us, because uh, pretty soon we're going to be talking about the future. Because <laughs> there's one <laughs> one one item on our list that has not yet happened. But anyway, as of the recording of this podcast, anyway. So November, that's when, uh, well, 
big, big news for people who like to fly, right? Uh, right. The FAA announced that they were going to relax restrictions um, almost immediately after we published an episode about their restrictions on uh, using electronics during flights. I'd like to think that we caused them to really examine their policies and question whether or not they were actually useful. I think that had why. to have been it, Jonathan. Yeah. I think that we're doing really important work My here. ego demands that that's the truth. Anyway. Uh, but so, so at this point, you can... Uh, well, okay, it depends on any given airline um, yeah. provider's right. regulations. M- most airlines are going to probably fall right in line with it quickly because no one wants to be the the, airli- the one airline that doesn't allow their customers to do that. And then everyone's like, well, I'm just going to go fly on this other one from yeah. now on. Yeah, but but so for it's already rolling out in many airlines. And uh, for the most part, you can use electronic devices as long as it's not using a, a um, cellular phone signal. Right. Um, while, you know, I mean, from, you know, the moment that you are seated until the moment that you land. Uh, yeah, ready to get off the plane. Yeah. So you can just keep that. Don't that, need to shut it down during takeoff and landing. And keep that, uh, creative, uh, uh, what is it, uh, Oh, Creative Labs, uh, uh, MP3 player that weighs 400 pounds going the entire time. I do have one of those somewhere. Uh, but yeah, um, you, you still, you still cannot use, uh, cell phone signals. Right. Um, that although is, that's also up for debate now. That's up for debate. Um, it's, it's also part of the problem is that it's, uh, that's tied up in the Federal Communications Commission. Right. So it's not just so FAA. So it's not just FAA. Yeah. It's also the FCC. Much more complicated. Yeah. Um, and, and again, yes, we, we did a full episode on that on September 30th. If you would like to listen to exactly why we thought that they should do what they announced that they were going to do. Yeah, which clearly happened afterward because we're talking November now. So, I mean, correlation, causation, same thing, right? <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, also in November, a certain company held its initial public offering or IPO. Yeah, uh, Twitter. Yeah. Big, big crazy news. This is kind of in the footsteps of uh, Facebook's uh, about a year previous yep. IPO, sort of, kind of. Um, they Their IPO launched with an offer of $26 Per share. Yeah, that was the offer price. That was before it went on on actually the market. But they said the offer price was going to be twenty six dollars per share. As it turns out, once the market actually opened, the opening price, which is not the same as the offer price, well, had was jumped, a little higher. Yeah, it had jumped all the way to uh, to forty five dollars and ten cents right? per share. And the peak that day was fifty dollars and nine cents per share. However. That's not what it closed at. <laughs> it, it settled back down at uh, at forty four ninety. Yeah, so that um, means that it was actually by the end of the day a little lower than what it was when it first started. Which meant that if you bought it at the very beginning of the day and you were holding on to it at the end of the day, you you'd, you'd, technically you'd lost, lost a twenty tiny, cents. Yeah, but um, per share, per share, per share. Right? <laughs> no, importantly, um, you know. However, uh, no, I mean that's that's great for you know. For, for, for a company that is still way behind, uh, say, Facebook um, sure. in users. Yeah, it doesn't have a billion users. No. Certainly not. Um, but, but you know, that's that's great. I was excited for them. And it's, it's interesting because this is one of those. I remember I was doing research for this podcast and uh, and I pulled up information about Twitter and the IPO and, and what reactions were to it. And two results back to back where one was a person who wrote about how the Twitter IPO was a huge success for Twitter. And the other one was that Twitter IPO was a huge failure for Twitter. And I thought, (laughs) oh, finance, no wonder I don't understand you. You're like quantum mechanics. It's in superposition. It's both failing and succeeding at the same time. I think it's one of those time will tell kind of stories. It's, It's still it's still early. We'll still find out. Um, Another another thing currently in weird financial development, um, the the value of bitcoins yeah. did 
did some crazy things this year. Yeah, at the um, beginning of the year, they were pretty cheap. Uh, like 12 to 13 bucks. Yeah, right around, yeah, right at the very top end of $12, a low end of $13, depending mm-hmm. upon the day you were looking at it. But, uh, yeah, throughout the, the year, the, the value changed, uh, significantly all the way <laughs> to the point on November 29th, the currency hit its all time high so far as of the recording of this podcast of $1,242 per coin, which is a 10,000, more than 10,000% increase in value. Uh, it's since then dropped down to a, a little bit below a thousand dollars. Yeah, I think per it's like nine hundred and sixty or something. Something the last time like I checked. that. Yeah, but um, I mean, oof. See, this is why I say it's not. I can't think of it as a currency because, but rather as an investment. Yeah, because you can't like. I how would I price something so that you could buy it with Bitcoin, knowing that the next day I could have potentially lost out on thousands of dollars or that your your buyer could have lost out on thousands of dollars right. if, if they were buying you know a, a keychain from you then suddenly that keychain is is worth yeah like the, like i i paid what i thought was going to be three dollars for this keychain but now it turns out i paid three thousand dollars for this keychain yeah yeah i mean it's it's that's why I say it's hard to call it a, a real currency because the volatility means that you cannot have a stable economy. You can't, as a vendor, it's very dangerous for you to create any price for your items unless those are dynamically priced so that they reflect whatever the current value of Bitcoin is, which means anytime anyone visits your store, the prices are going to look very different day to day. So yeah. it makes it really hard to have a stable economy. Absolutely. Uh, and I am not a finance person, but that's that just seems... That like, seems like logic. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that brings us up to December. Yeah, and I think that we only have one bullet point. No, uh, technically we have two. Two. I added. I added you one. Added one. Yes. So, uh, what so anarchy is this? First, there's the the big the other big announcement that Jeff Bezos was involved in, where he went on 60 Minutes. Um, right before Cyber Monday, he went on 60 Minutes and talked about um, his plans to launch Amazon Prime Air. Launch. I like what you did there, Lauren. Oh, you used a pun. I didn't mean to. But you did. We'll all remember this day. Uh, okay. So anyway, so Amazon Prime Air is a drone delivery service or will hypothetically be a drone delivery service, assuming that many things, in- including technology, pricing and regulations all fall into place. Right. And it would, uh, it would fall. End up, that's like a pun too. It would end up taking off oh, in four to five years goodness, if the idea could fly. Oh. Uh, but it may turn out that, you know, something, maybe one or multiple factors Cause this idea to drop like a stone, and not glide on by. I'm I'm running out. I'm running out. <laughs> so yeah, Amazon Prime Air. If it happens, that means that you know we might have robots delivering our 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 stuff. To our, us. our our stuff under five pounds. Yeah, if we live within ten miles of a fulfillment center, and I'm I'm guessing there's going to be. Potentially a hefty delivery fee. I would certainly guess that personally. Yeah, um, yeah. I would. I, I I've seen people say like, "Is this going to put people out of a job?" I'm. My guess is that to make this make economic sense, there would have to be an additional delivery fee if you had to have something within half an hour, which would uh, mean that a lot of people would opt out of it and say, "You know what? I'm just going to wait for it to get to me through regular means." I, I would suspect that it would be pricing on on par, at least with. 
uh, overnight delivery pricing. Yeah. But, um, at least, yeah. So, uh, here's my final bullet, the one that does not appear on your notes. Uh, technically, the reason why it doesn't appear on your notes is I added it at the last minute. And also, today, as we said, is December 12th when we're recording this. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh-huh. This, uh, this news refers to something that should happen on the 13th. So by the time you, dear listener, are listening to this episode, it will have already happened unless it didn't. And uh, that is that the Steam operating system is supposed to be available starting tomorrow, December 13th, Friday the 13th. I'll be right back. Uh, that, uh, you know, so assuming that that all goes well, we're going to have this new operating system on the market, which potentially could end up being uh, down the line, a real competitor against some of the next generation consoles that have just come out. Or sure. Current generation. I keep saying next generation. Now they're current. But <laughs> Xbox One and PS4. Mm-hmm. Oh, and also Nintendo Wii U. I don't know. We why keep I don't forgetting think about, about that. I yeah, don't know. so does everybody else. So that's why. Oh. Anyway, so uh, if that in fact happened or did not happen, we don't know yet. So you guys should write us and let us know. Actually, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this whole conversation. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, overall, I, I hope that this has been an enjoyable look back at 2013. It's, it's I, always fun to remember, like, like there's stories here. That I'm like, oh yeah, that did happen. That this did year. happen, and and you know, just it's weird for perspective purposes of of how quickly some things went out or or failed to go out. And yeah, yeah. This also marks uh, a full year of you podcasting on tech stuff. Oh my goodness! Yeah, it does. how's that feel? That feels very strange. Yep, yep. So I, uh, I hope I hope that uh, that you have enjoyed my learning curve, y'all. <laughs> well, it certainly didn't take you very long to get the grasp of oh, it. Well, thank so, you. Uh, so I think the listeners agree with me. And if you don't, keep it to yourself, you so-and-sos. All right, but for the rest of you guys who want to chime in with constructive things to say, like suggestions for future episodes, maybe there's something about 2014 that really has you excited and that's something you want us to talk about. Or maybe there's something that happened in 1014 and you're like, I wanted to hear a podcast about that. We've been known to do those kind of things. Yep. Write us and let us know. Our email address is techstuff at discovery.com or drop us a line on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. You can find us there. Our handle is techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again in 2014. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 